Hey, thanks, Ben. Thanks for that prayer. Uh, really appropriate prayer for this morning that, um, that we would hear what the Lord has to say. I hope that you do hear what the Lord has to say. I hope I get my pages in the right order because they, I did not fix them from the last service. So if something doesn't make sense, it could just be I'm on the wrong page. Sorry about that. Uh, my name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here. If you uh, know me, you probably have noticed already something in my voice. I promise you it's not COVID. I just recovered not long ago. It is a sinus infection, but I did bring my cup of hot tea up here. And if I stop and take a drink of this, it's either because I need something on my throat or I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. So they told me that the service would not be as busy as first service um, because of the Super Bowl and uh, whoever they was was wrong. And so thanks for being here today. How many of you excited for the Super Bowl? You gonna watch it today? Yeah, good. Any, uh, any Rams fans in the room? Rams fans, okay, all right. A couple, couple of math staff fans. Any, uh, any Bengals fans? Yeah, that was first service too. They, they had the Bengals thing. Who just hopes both teams have fun? All right, let's just be honest. <laughs> Anybody watch just for the commercials still? Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. Um, I don't need to tell you that the Super Bowl is kind of a big deal, right? You, hear, you probably heard the stories this week of talk that, oh, why isn't Super Bowl Monday a holiday? Um, in Cincinnati, I heard they're already letting many of the school districts out for Monday. Uh, after I don't know if they're anticipating a win or a loss or just riots or cars burning. I don't know what it is, but they're going to let people out of school on Monday for Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal for those who are watching it. In fact, um, I saw a survey this week, which kind of blew my mind. It was by an online finance site called NerdWallet. I don't know if you saw this, but they asked uh, football fans, how much would you give up to see your team win a Super Bowl? And 52%, okay, this is over half of football fans, 52% said they would give up their entire year's worth of vacation days to see their team win the Super Bowl. Yeah, sad. And some people are like, yeah, that's a, that's a deal. I'd do that. But the Super Bowl is a big deal. And as big of a deal as it is for those of us who watch it, it's even a bigger deal you know, for the city that hosts it. Uh, maybe not so much for Los Angeles, because Los Angeles is already kind of a big city with a lot going on, and there's too many other distractions there. But do you remember 10 years ago this week is when Indianapolis hosted the Super Bowl? Do you remember that? That was really fun, right? And then, uh, even if you didn't go to the game, maybe you got to go downtown and see all of the preparations that went into that. It took years, uh, starting with building a stadium and then uh, to track the Super Bowl, and then even the months leading up to it as hotels and restaurants were adding capacity and people were being trained, volunteers were being trained to be host for the city. They closed off all of Georgia Street and redid that to make kind of a indoor-outdoor kind of plaza where people could go even if it got cold. And there were so many preparations and just thousands and thousands of people, uh, visitors that descended on the city that week. That was so much fun. Now take all those preparations. I do have a point, by the way. <laughs> take all those preparations, move them back a, a 2,000 years into the Middle East, into Jerusalem around the time of Passover. And that's kind of what it was like to be in first century Palestine during the Passover. If you don't really jive with the Super Bowl analogy, then think about Christmas, right? Think about what we just went through back in December. If you're a Christmas fan like I am, you know, uh, it can be really, really exciting, but it can also be really stressful, right? I mean, who decided that in one month, December, we should cram 90% of all of our social activity for the year into one month, that we should write a letter or card to everyone we've ever met in our life, 
uh, that we should buy gifts for everybody we like and some people that we don't like, that we should bake cookies and cakes and pies and have family gatherings at our house. And oh, by the way, just to make it easier, let's let all the kids out of school for two weeks, right? That should just free things up for us. Like, who decided that? That's a big deal, right? A lot of preparations, months of preparations go into Christmas. That's what Passover was like in the first century. It's the biggest Jewish holiday, lots of anticipation, preparations for months leading up to the big day. In fact, many scholars believe that Jerusalem at the time uh, of Jesus had about 200,000 residents, a pretty big city for the Middle East at the time, 200,000 people. But when the Passover came, Jewish law required that any male within 15 miles of Jerusalem needed to come in with his family to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so a lot of people believe that Jerusalem would swell from about 200,000 people to two and a quarter million people during Passover. A little city with a big crowd, right? And that's the scene we walk in on today as we start uh, our study. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to John chapter two. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I wanted to point out a couple of resources to you this morning. Um, we have some Bibles that look like this in the back of the room. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to go grab one of those and please take this with you. Uh, you can have that, that's our gift to you. It's page 724, by the way, in this Bible. If you've got one of those, page 724 is John chapter two. We also have, if, you're, if you haven't been around for very long, um, in this Grow series that we're in, we've got a journal that is yours to keep. These are at the Info Hub. You can grab one of those on your way out as we read through. Uh, the book of John this year, you can keep your notes on what you've read. And then with, there's a reading plan also uh, that tells week by week what we're going to study together. So we'll study it here on Sunday, and then you can take it with you. You can study it for the week and uh, find out what else is in the Word, what, what the Lord speaks to you through that. Uh, as Ben said, um, we're walking through the book of John this year as a church. The series is called Grow. We're in week seven. And uh, last week, lead pastor Paul Mumaw was here. He took us to a wedding in Cana if you remember that, in the northern area of Galilee where Jesus turned water into wine. It was the first miracle that the Gospel of John records for us in Jesus's life. But as you read through today's section, you're gonna see that Jesus is apparently recording some other miracles in Jerusalem around the Passover. But uh, it's what happens right before this high holy day uh, that I wanna focus on today. And so if you've got your Bibles open, we're gonna start in John 2, 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the side screens here. You can follow along with me there. John 2, 12 says this, 12 and 13. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Uh, this is Jesus. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And I wanted to show you verse 12 to set you up for verse 13. Because why does it matter that Jesus went up to Capernaum for a few days before he came down to Jerusalem? Well, look at this map. Uh, this is a map of uh, Israel uh, in, in the first century. Capernaum is way up here at the top, way up here in the north, by the, on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus went down to Capernaum. By the way, if that's confusing for you, because we tend to think of north is up and south is down uh, in the Bible, when they talk about that in, in uh, these times, when they say up, they mean elevation. Jerusalem is high up on a plateau, so you always go up to Jerusalem, even though it's down in the south here, uh, down kind of near the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. And so Jesus went down to Capernaum, which is at sea level, and then went up to Jerusalem. Why is that such a big deal? Well, because look how far apart these two are. Uh, Capernaum is up here in the north. It's about an 80-mile walk, 75 or 80-mile walk from Capernaum to Jerusalem, which means that Jesus was not required by law to go down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So why did he? 
If Jesus wasn't required by law to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, why did he do that? I want to talk about that because it's priorities. It's his priorities. In fact, um, we see the Passover play an important role in Jesus's life several times throughout scripture. We see it first in, um, in when Jesus was 12 years old in Luke chapter two. Maybe you remember this story that Jesus and his family went up to Jerusalem for the Passover and his family's parents left him behind. You remember that? And they traveled for three days before they realized that, oh, somebody, wait, Jesus is missing. Where is he? And they go back to the temple to find him. Hey, if you've ever thought you were a bad parent, have you ever left your kid behind for three days and then realized they were gone? Jesus got left behind for three days. His parents didn't even realize it. So a little bit of grace there for you, okay? No matter what you've done. Um, but you go back there, they left him behind. But I want you to see this important detail in, in Luke chapter two. It says this, every year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Look at those words there. Every year, according to the custom. Every year, according to the custom. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem for the Passover even when he wasn't required by law? It was a custom. We do, we do it every year. It's something we do every year. Parents, I know it's easy to think that something you're doing is not making a difference. That you're coming to church, you're having your kids go to Gen Kids, or you're sending them to GSM, that you're reading scripture together as a family, that you're praying together, and you think, I, why, am I, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting time? It's just not getting through to them. They're not paying attention in church. They're, they're not listening to me when I give them advice. They're not praying with us. They're, they're goofing off. Why do we even do this? I just want to encourage you that there is something important about repetition, about consistency, about every year, about every week, about every month, that when we encourage our kids to come to church with us, to go into their gen kids class, to go to GSM, to, to read their Bible, to pray with us at dinner time, when we encourage that, we're reinforcing a pattern, right? It's like, it's like stacking blocks on a tower, right? Every one of those things is a block that we're stacking, we're putting one on top of the other. And if, you know, if, you, if you're stacking blocks and you, and you forget one or two, you may not notice it at first, but over time, as you start to stack those blocks, that tower gets higher and higher, right? That's kind of how our faith is. We're, we're building it with blocks. And when we uh, reinforce the importance of that consistency and that repetition, that we're telling our kids that this is important, that it matters. And, on, and the converse, what does it say when we, you know, we decide we're gonna skip church so we can go to that tournament or go to a game or whatever. It's not for me. That's for you, okay? Just do whatever you want with that. But priorities. Priorities is why Jesus, that's what I'm trying to say. Priorities is why Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, we'll see that as we study through John this year. The, the Passover plays an important role. We see it when he's 12. We see it here when he's 30. We see it uh, the next time in John chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000. Then we see it at the end of Jesus' life when he goes into Jerusalem finally on Palm Sunday. He rides in on the a colt of a donkey, and he's uh, greeted as the king. He's going, why is he going in the, into Jerusalem? He's going for the Passover. He's going because that was the custom. That was what they did. And on this occasion, though, he's headed into the city for the Passover, and he sees something. There's something that happens that catches Jesus' attention. And uh, it's in John 2.14. It says this. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, I want to really paint a picture for you of what's happening here, but to do that, I have to use a, an imperfect analogy, okay? So I hope you'll let me, uh, just, uh, just allow me to do this uh, for a few minutes. I'm going to use this imperfect analogy that this is the temple, all right? This place, this building, this church building, the, the end of this old Firestone plant uh, is the temple of God, and only Jews, only practicing Jews are allowed in here. Okay, so this building is the temple. This auditorium is the holy place. 
Uh, only the priest would be allowed in this area. And then right here on this stage is the Holy of Holies. If you remember, if you were here for Jose's message a couple weeks ago, he talked about this, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies. Only Joel can go in there, all right? And so only one guy, I don't know who that is. Paul, only Paul can go in there, all right? There's only one guy that can go in there. Um, but then there's also outside the temple, there's the temple courts. That's the parking lot, right? And there's temple courts on both sides, uh, sometimes the temple courts are full and you've got to go across the street to park in the temple courts. But usually there's room in the temple courts. The temple courts are outside and anybody's allowed in the temple courts, okay? Gentiles can come to temple courts um, and people can come there and sell things. But it's, it's sacred space, right? It's part of the house of God. It's part of the temple of God. And so now <clears throat> imagine this. Imagine that it's the law that every year for Christmas, you have to come here. You have to come here and you have to bring a gift, uh, I, that's not the law. Maybe it should be the law, but it's not the law. But you have to come here for Christmas. You got to bring a gift. And as you do, you know, the gift has to be a live animal. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know how far you came from this morning, maybe just a couple miles, but you probably think, I don't want to put a goat in my car. So it would be convenient, right? If when you got to the church, they were selling goats in the parking lot or sheep or lamb, whatever. Uh, but you get here and you realize that they're charging twice the market value for a sheep in the parking lot. I don't know what the market value for a sheep is, but let's just pretend. They're charging twice the market value. And if you can't afford a sheep, the good news is you can buy some doves. This is probably what Jesus's family would have done, by the way, because the poorer families, um, the, the Bible allows, if you can't afford a lamb for the sacrifice, you can buy two doves. You can bring two doves to the temple and be sacrificed. And so the doves are out in the parking lot, but the doves are very popular because there's a lot of people who probably can't afford a large sacrifice and the doves are jacked up in price. Think about it like <clears throat> when you buy gas for your rental car, you ever notice how much more expensive the gas station by the airport is than every other gas station? Like in Orlando, there are 7,000 gas stations and they're all $3 a gallon, except for the one that's right by the rental car place and it's $7 a gallon. You know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening here. Now, pretend you get here and you decide, okay, I'm just gonna buy my gift at, in the temple courts, but oh, we don't take dollars. We only take euros. Uh, it's, sorry, it's not my rule, but it's the rule. But the good news is there's a guy out here in the temple courts that's exchanging your dollars for euros. And you go over there and you realize he's charging twice the exchange rate, right? Well, that's what's happening here. You can't pay, uh, your, you can't buy your temple sacrifice. You can't spend money in the temple that is Roman money or from the foreign money. You have to exchange your money for temple money before you do it. And they're making a profit and the people selling the sacrifices are making a profit. This is the scene that Jesus walks in on in the temple courts. They're, they're, uh, they're taking advantage of people. They're, they're selling things at a profit. They're exchanging money at a profit. People that many of whom could barely afford the sacrifice as it was. And on top of that, they're doing it in the house of the Lord, his father's house. And this is supposed to be a sacred place. And what happens next, if you've never read this passage, what happens next might really challenge your view of Jesus. Because look at the next verse, verse 15 says this. <clears throat> so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who he sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, <clears throat> we think of Jesus as a gentle lamb. Even John the Baptist called him the lamb of God. And when we think of lambs, we often think meek, cuddly, harmless. But how do we reconcile that with the Jesus we see here? Bringing a whip into the temple. No, wait, not bringing a whip. Look at this again. He made a whip. 
of chords. Like, like he comes in and he sees what's going on and he goes, you guys better get out of here. I'm going to go make a whip and I'm going to be back. All right. And he picks up stuff and he's made, and this whole time, you know, he's watching him and these guys are watching him. Like what is happening here? And then Jesus goes, oh, you're not gone yet. Okay, here we go. This is going to happen right here, right? This is not, this is not gentle, meek Jesus. He's driving people out with a whip. He's turning tables over. Coins are rattling on the ground. How do we reconcile that with this view we have of Jesus? Or how about when he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers? Or how about when he tells one of his best friends, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, when we think about Jesus being the lamb of God, we often ascribe lamb-like behavior to him. But sometimes the lamb turns into a lion. You know, many of us mistake, make this mistake of contrasting the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, especially when we're new believers. You know, I hear a lot of new believers or non-believers that tell me, uh, you know, I really like Jesus in the New Testament, but man, the God of the Old Testament, I don't know about him. I gotta tell you, friends, it's the same God. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that means if Jesus is the picture of the invisible God, as Colossians tells us, that he has to have all of the love of God and forgiveness of God, but also all of the wrath of God contained within him. Wrath and love, wrath and love. It's all contained in Jesus, fully contained in Jesus. I love how Bible commentator Kent Hughes says this. He says, gentle Jesus, meek and mild is a concept that has been so overworked that many today preach and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. You know, we sometimes see this righteous anger well up in Jesus. And I think it's important that when we see this, that we look at what causes this to happen. Because I know a lot of angry Christians who would like to grab this and use it as their life verse, right? Like, like, yeah, Jesus got mad. I'm gonna get mad about some things too. But so many times, friends, followers of Christ that I see that are getting mad about things are getting mad about things that have nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, We get angry about all sorts of things, but I want you to see what Jesus was angry about. There's three things that I see in this passage that he's angry about. Number one, he's angry about religious people that are cheating the less fortunate. You know, many of the people that were in the temple courts, I mean, anybody was allowed in, but many of the people that were cheating them were tied to the temple in some way. In fact, many commentators believe that Annas, the high priest at the time, the only guy that was allowed in the Holy of Holies, that Annas would actually sell franchises to booths in the temple courts during Passover. So if you wanted to go make money off the pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, you had to give some money to Annas, to the high priest guy, and he'll get you set up, right? Jesus gets angry about that because the religious people are taking advantage of poor people. This temple leader was enhancing his wealth on the backs of the poor. And Jesus got angry about that. Second thing is this, the people in the temple courts had a low view of God. There are people who are doing this, we're ignoring the significance and the importance of the temple as the house of God. And look at what Jesus yells at him. He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, we'll see later that he wasn't too concerned about the physical temple, but the fact that it represented the presence of God, right? That it, that was where the presence of God was. A low view of the temple meant a low view of God, and it caused a righteous anger to well up in him. In fact, look at what happens next. The next verse, John 2.17 says this, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, <clears throat> I just want you to imagine that you're one of Jesus' disciples and you 
walk into this scene. Now, remember, this is very early in Jesus's ministry, okay? This is maybe a, a, a few weeks or a couple of months in, and you've you started following him down along the Jordan River when he was baptized at Jericho. You went up to Cana with him to that wedding. You saw him turn water into wine. That was pretty cool. Uh, you came back down with him. You went up to Capernaum for a few days, and now you're back in Jerusalem. That's all that's happened. And you walk in on this scene, and here is your rabbi, your teacher, who uh, is claiming to be the Messiah, and he's brandishing a whip and turning over tables and knocking down uh, money changers and their coins. And... Uh, you go, hmm, maybe I made a huge mistake following this guy. And then your mind flashes back to this, this passage that you remember from your childhood when you were growing up in the temple from Psalm 69. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. And you remember that was written about the one who was to be the savior of the world. Jesus saw this group of largely religious people who had a low view of God and it got him mad, he had to act. But there's a third thing, there's a third thing that's happening here, and it's this, they have a low view of God, but they have a high tolerance for sin. This third thing is, uh, here's what I mean, in, in the days leading up to the Passover, here's what would happen. All these Jewish families would take great care to clean their homes. Uh, you know how you clean your baseboards at Christmas before everybody comes over? <laughs> but here's what they're doing. In uh, Deuteronomy 16, <clears throat> they're told to get rid of all the yeast in their house. If you, if you remember the story of the Passover, we talked about this a few weeks ago, where God came through when the Israelites were held captive in Egypt. God came through and uh, let them go with this, this ter terrible plague that killed all the firstborn in Egypt. And he told the Jewish people if they would wipe the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, that God would pass over their houses, but that they had to prepare a meal because they were gonna have to leave early in the morning. And he told them to make bread without yeast. He said, don't use any yeast. And so then in Deuteronomy 16, the Lord tells them that in, in preparation for the Passover, you have to get rid of all the yeast in your house, no yeast. So the, the, the Jewish people would take all this care to go through their house and clean out every speck of yeast that was in their house. Their houses were immaculately clean before the Passover, but then they come to the temple and they're making his father's house unclean. So they got this high view, high tolerance for sin in their own lives. And by the time Jesus shows up, it's just a regular part of Passover. You know, this is, this is how sin happens in our lives. I don't know if you know this. This is how sin happens. It doesn't, they, the, the people in the temple didn't just wake up one morning and go, you know what? There's a lot of people coming today. I think we'll try to make some money off of them. What happened was over the years, it started to creep in. Hey, we're going to help some people out, and we'll, we'll, we'll sell some doves in the courtyard so they can uh, buy them here. Oh, you know what? They can't get doves anywhere else. Why don't we charge them just a little bit more money? We can use that to help pay for the repairs on the temple. And then over time, it's like, well, hey, we can invite some money changers in, and they could exchange the currency so they didn't have to go anywhere else. And then over time, it just creeps in and creeps in and creeps in. And that's what sin does in our lives, right? It just creeps in and creeps in and creeps in. Most of us don't wake up and think, hey, I'm going to go wreck my life today. But sin has crept into our heart. And by the time Jesus shows up in this scene, it's just acceptable. That's just what they do. We have money changers and we got uh, vendors in the temple courts. And Jesus walks in and he gets angry about it. Because just because something is accepted by society doesn't make it acceptable to God. And in this case, the tolerance for sin had crept in over the years and become part of the landscape. It's normal, right? It's fine. But in God's eyes, it wasn't fine. And this tolerance for sin threw Jesus into a rage. Now, make no mistake, his anger was not a sin. Right? Jesus' anger was a righteous anger. It was not a sin. It was not a slip up. 
It was not the one time that Jesus forgot to be godlike. In fact, Jesus was just as godlike in the temple courts as he was on the cross. He was perfectly demonstrating the balance between love and wrath, love and wrath. And anytime you consider God, you've got to consider both the wrath of God and the love of God, the wrath of God and the love of God. Anytime you consider Jesus, the wrath of God and the love of God, because if there's no wrath, then what is the love saving us from? So what is this anger, this righteous anger? What is Jesus coming in and clearing out the temples? What does this have to do with us today? Like, what is our application? What are we supposed to learn from this? What do we need to think about? What do we, how do we put this in context for today? What, what, what is the temple today? This is a question that I think a lot of commentators would ask. What is the temple today? And, and a lot of times when we think about that, we immediately think of this place, right? The church. The church is the new temple. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, there, that's fair. We gotta be careful what we do in here, what we, what we say in here, what we uh, promote in here. We have to be good stewards of what God's entrusted us with. We have to be cautious about what we draw attention to and what we support and what we worship for sure. But this isn't the temple of God today. Where's the temple? Let me show you something a few verses later, verse 19. <clears throat> Jesus answered them. He's talking to the, the leaders. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again for three days. <laughs> they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, I want you to see this because Jesus, in this case, he's talking about the resurrection. He's predicting the resurrection. Remember, this is very early in his ministry. He's still got probably three years of ministry left with these guys, but he already knows he's gonna be killed and he's gonna be raised to life in three days. But this metaphor is also a great example of foreshadowing and about how the physical temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's gonna to cease to exist and be replaced by a new, living, active home for God on earth. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The apostle Paul writes to the church, to people who are in Christ, he says, do you not know that your temples, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, from whom you, have, you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, your body, my body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple. You are God's dwelling place. You are a sanctuary for God's presence, which is really cool. It's also really intimidating because each of you, if you're a sanctuary for God's presence, here's a question for you to think about for a minute. What does Jesus need to clear out from my temple? Is there a place in your life where you're taking advantage of others? Where in your life do you have a low view of God? You know, where in your life do you have a high tolerance for sin? You know, for, for some of you, let's just be honest, for some of you, it's alcohol. Like you have, it started with a glass of red wine with dinner and that helped you relax after a long day of work or a long day of school, but it's become a lot more than that. And it's not a glass anymore, it's a bottle. It's not wine anymore, it's something harder. And you know, you can't really tell anybody because you're hiding it from your spouse or you're hiding it from your friends, you're hiding it from your family. They don't know how much you drink. You do all kinds of fancy things to make it look like it's not very much, like it's not a problem. And I don't know if you'd even admit it's a problem yet, but when you are honest with yourself in your heart of hearts, you think about, 
that's a problem in my life. It's keeping me from better relationships. It's keeping me from God. For some of you, it's uh, prescription drugs. You know, it started with the accident or the injury and you needed them because you were in pain and then the pain went away, but the need didn't. And you kept after it and you kept telling your doctor, you kept lying to your doctor and telling him it was still bad, it was still bad. And then eventually your doctor said, no, you can't have any more. And then you had to go find a new doctor. And now you find all kinds of ways to get those pills because they've got control over you, they've got a hold on you. And for some of you, it's, it's lust or pornography. that You found it early on in your life. You were a teen or a preteen and you just liked the way it made you feel and you thought, someday I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna get married and it's gonna go away. I'll, I'll be able to do whatever I want. It's gonna, but it hasn't. It stuck with you. And sometimes you think you've got it conquered and then those temptations just come back and you don't know how to get rid of it. You don't know how to get it out of your life because it's been there. It's like it's, like it's always been there for you. Some of you, it's, it's greed and you cover it up by saying, I'm just trying to be a good provider for my family, but your family doesn't ever see you. In reality, you're trying to buy that next thing, that next house or that next car. You're trying to keep up with the guy in the office next to you or the lady in the office next to you. And, and greed has just become a driving factor in your life. For some of you, it's gossip. And uh, it starts very naturally because you want to find out how I can pray for my friends and what's going on in their lives and how I can help them. And, but then all of a sudden you find you're obsessed with letting other people know that you're in the know and people come to you. You're the, you're the place people come to find out about how everybody's doing. For some of you, it's overeating. It's gluttony. It's, eating's not a sin. We got to have food in our life, but you know, that's my source of comfort when I'm down or depressed, I'll turn to food. It becomes a big deal for me. I can't get away from it. For some of you, it's what you watch or what you listen to or what you read, and it's affecting the way you think. It's affecting the people you love, and it's affecting how you interact with people and your relationship with God. Look, this tolerance for sin I'm talking about is a tolerance for our sin, like the sin that's inside of us. I'm talking about it. I'm not talking about an intolerance of sin of others. All of us have a very low tolerance for sin in other people that we see. Like we're, we're anxious to call that out. We're eager to call that out and tell you what you're doing wrong. But we all have a high tolerance for sin in our own lives. At some point, there's something like, come on. Some of us have these patterns that have been in our lives for so long, we're starting to feel like they're a pet. Friends, you need to treat them more like a pest than a pet. Start making a whip. Get in and drive them out. Like I, in fact, I bet that there's one thing, there's one thing in your life that you can think of right now that probably came to your mind as soon as I said that, and you think, if I could just get rid of, if Jesus would come in and drive that one thing out of my life, my relationship with my spouse would be so much better, my relationship with my kids or my brothers and sisters, my relationship with my friends would be so much better, and my relationship with God would be so much better if I could just get rid of that one thing in my life, if Jesus would just come into my life it would make me a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better friend, a better son, a better daughter, make me closer to God. What is that one thing? What is that one thing for you? Trust it to Jesus. He's in the temple cleaning business. And whatever it is, I want to tell you, if, it's gonna, if you're going to grow, it's got to go. That one thing, if you're going to grow, it's got to go. Well, how do you do that? Well, in just a couple minutes, we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray with you, and we're going to pray a dangerous prayer together because we're gonna invite Jesus into the deepest recesses of our lives, the place that you have tried to keep him out of. We're gonna invite him in. 
We're going to invite him to bring his whip and start driving things out. I'm telling you now, if you don't want to drive sin out of your life in a minute when we pray, don't pray with me. But if you do, I'm just telling you now, if you allow Jesus to come into your heart and into your life, I'm not talking about salvation. Some of you haven't taken that step. If you have never taken that step to invite Jesus into your heart the first time and, 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 and give up your life that you're living for the, in exchange for eternal life through Christ, I wanna to talk to you about that after the service. But I'm talking to those of you who are followers of Christ, you would say, I'm a Christian. You're not letting Jesus into the deepest parts of your life. We're gonna do that here in just a minute. But I wanna talk about one other thing before we do that, because there's a controversy about this passage. <clears throat> See, uh, if, if you don't study the Bible very much or you don't really understand like how Jesus's life worked um, or, or maybe you're just curious about this, this passage we read today from John has the uh, temple cleansing happening at the very beginning of his ministry, like just a few months in. And then if you read like uh, Matthew 12, he clears the temple right before he goes to the cross, like in the last Passover of his life. So a lot of people will look at that and go, well, you know, Bible doesn't, it conflicts, well, it doesn't make sense, which, which is it? Well, there's a lot of evidence to say that it's actually both, that he clears the temple twice. Because here's what happens. If the temple stays empty, then the money changers and the vendors, they all just come back. There's nothing to keep them out. And sin in our life is the same way, that if we drive the sin out of our life, but we don't replace it with something that's good and helpful and useful, and pleasing to God, then it can creep back in and become a problem again. So we gotta replace the, the sinful habits in our lives with good and healthy and productive habits in our lives. And so sometimes God will uh, clear out our temple and replace it with uh, things like meditating on scripture, or replace it with things like prayer, or replace it with things like um, meeting with other people who are uh, trying to walk the same walk that we are. And by the way, I am not underselling the importance of having a professional in your life, if you are dealing with alcoholism or an addiction, or if you are dealing with depression or anxiety, it is okay to talk to a professional. It is not a sin to talk to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, to have medication to help with that. That's okay. That can be part of God's plan for your life too. Please don't hear me say that. But what I'm telling you is that Jesus can come in and he can replace these harmful habits with good and healthy ones. And, and, and he sometimes does that through all those things, but he sometimes does it through a friend who will confront us and tell us what you are doing is not good. When a well-meaning person that you know and love and trust confronts you about something in your life, first of all, I wanna tell you, they probably did not want to do that. Most of us really dislike confrontation, but we love somebody and if we trust them and they confront us, why do we sometimes just cut them out of our lives and say, you're not healthy, you're toxic? Why don't we listen to what they probably took a lot of courage to get up and say? For Christians who want to grow in their faith and grow in their relationship with God, why do we resist him? Why do we constantly resist him? Why do we continue to say, I'm gonna deal with that someday? Yeah, I should probably think about changing that. Well, I'm gonna tell you, friends, today, today can be the day. Today can be the day of freedom. Today can be the day of salvation. Why? Not just to show you're a good person, not to show off what you can do. Not, don't do it for anyone else. Do it because you have a God who loves you. You have a God who's crazy about you. He came to earth as a human, as his only son to rescue you. Do you have a high tolerance for sin in your life? Get rid of it because 
You need to have a high view of God and a low tolerance for sin in your life. Do it because he rescued you. Do it because your body is not your own. Do it because you were bought with a price. Allow Jesus to come into your temple, to come into your life and replace those unhealthy patterns with healthy ones. Replace them with prayer. Replace them with meditating on scripture. Replace them with meeting with a friend who's trying to cleanse their own temple. Make room for God in your life. Allow those good and healthy and pleasing habits to replace your low view of God and your high tolerance for sin and mark today, today on your calendar as the day Jesus came in and cleansed your temple. Let's pray together. Father, oh God, we know you love us. We know you want the best for us. And Lord, there's a whole world right outside these doors that tells us that what you want is not the best. There's so much other that draws our attention, that attracts our attention, that it's more pleasing to look at, that's more pleasing to the tongue, that's more pleasing to the eye. And Lord, those of us who have made Jesus the center of our lives know in our heart of hearts that your way is better. But yet, there's a lot of shiny things out there. And, and Father, sometimes we get caught up in that and sometimes it just becomes part of the landscape. It becomes part of our lives and it becomes not a big deal to us anymore. But we know that each and every sin where we turn our back on you and look to something in this world is a big deal. So Father, for those of us in this room that are, that are with me now, that are praying with me now, if you're praying with me now, let's just invite Jesus to come in and to bring his whip and to clean out that thing or those things that are keeping us from a relationship with God. Let's make some room in our temple for the Lord to come in and take up residence there. God, for my brothers and sisters here that are struggling with alcohol or drug abuse or lust or pornography or greed or gluttony, gossip, whatever it is, Father, maybe it's something else. Just drive that out right now. Every time those temptations come back, would you remind us that you are there, that you are present, you are in our body, you're in our temple, and there is a, a better, more, more fulfilling substitute in your word and in prayer and we, that we can call somebody. Father, we thank you that you've given us everything that we need to build that relationship for you. We should invite you in now. We invite you into this place. We invite you into our hearts and into our lives. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory we can point to this day and say our temple was cleared because Jesus came in. We pray all these things in his precious name.